Well, hey, folks. Thanks for listening to Oh, It's John. My name is John. My name is John. And that's pretty much all we've got. Yeah, pretty much. That's why there's a show. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's a great premise, I think. Well, we haven't worn it out yet. No, we haven't. So, uh, or at least we don't think so. People no. people listening might be disagreeing with us right now. Yeah. We, we can't hear them. The idea behind this show is we're going to bring some issues to your attention that have to do with Johns or the people that love Johns. Um, or just things that might be of interest to John's. Yeah, it is. Mm-hmm. But anyway, so we're both named John, and so is the subject of today's episode, kind of, because her sort name of. is a derivation of the same root name yep. that John comes from. So I think that's an acceptable enough connection. We don't have to make any yeah. more excuses for why oh. we're going to talk today about... Oh, it's Joan. Joan Crawford. Don't forget to call her Miss Joan Crawford. Miss Joan Crawford. That's right. I'm sure there's a writer that I should have been Oh, but sent. there is a writer, and it's amazing. You need to call her Miss Crawford at all times. Mm. And you must not make eye contact with her, Ooh. because she is a star of the highest order. See, the problem with that is, and I'll just say this to you because she's not here at the moment. She's not here. But um, I think she watches us all the time. Well, she, she's on my wall, dude. I, I, I would have a hard time not looking at her eyes. Of all the things in the room <laughs> that would be pulling you towards them, I think the eyes are the thing with, with Miss Joan Crawford. Her eyes are definitely the thing. So she, in a way, said, I don't want you to connect with me. I don't want there to be any agreement between us that we are both humans existing on Earth at the same time. Exactly. I'm, I'm in an exalted plane. Mm-hmm. It's that weird thing of, like, she was so inaccessible, yet so accessible. Because if you wrote a letter to her, she would write you back. It didn't matter who you were. If you wrote her a letter, Dear Joan, I really like that one picture you did. She would write back, Thank you. I appreciate you. Keep seeing my pictures. <laughs> so, yeah, I guess we, we can kind of come at this from a lot of different angles. We're going to talk about Joan Crawford. I asked for a movie recommendation from you. You're a big Joan Crawford fan, and you recommended a fan. film that we'll be talking about. But outside of that, I guess I kind of wanted to, you know, even though we do have this, this name root relationship with her, so she's basically like one of us. Yes. Um, and so identical in so many ways to you and me, John. Yeah, yes. I actually reject eye contact from other people as well, but I do it by kind of trying to stay in the back of the room and not be noticed and shuffle past without looking at people. I don't really want to be seen. I'm, I'm like, eh, I'm sort of an exaggerated introvert. You're an introvert, but you're also wearing an Iron Maiden t-shirt. I am wearing an Iron Maiden t-shirt to start a conversation. What would be, outside of the obvious deep connection we have through the name route, um, what would be the thing that got you into Joan Crawford? And if not specifically her, where does the obsession that I know that you have with old Hollywood come from? Has that been a lifelong thing? Well, um, it pretty much has been, uh, starting with um, when my dad, in the, the, the year 1991, uh, Kevin Costner made a film. Okay, so if, if, we were, if this was like a... Um, a biopic, and it says it was the year 1991. What song would be fading up? Um, I don't know. Maybe <laughs> "Opposites Attract" by Paula Abdul. But um, I wanted to see Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves. Okay. And it was PG-13. And my parents took PG-13 at like a we'll see basis, but my dad read that there was a hanging and a bunch of all... It was really super violent. So he comes home from Blockbuster. It was this place where you went and you... A paid. place? 
Yeah. Wait, wait, John. Why would anyone go to a place? Yeah. You paid $3. $3? For a block of plastic. Okay. And then you would return it the next day. And it's What was like, on this block of plastic? Um, a film. A film? A film. Oh, and it smelled like... A uh, plastic film? It smelled like carpet and raisinets. It was weird. Um... So anyway, um, my dad said... Did, was it possible that you were just laying on the carpet eating raisinets while you much. were watching the movie? Probably. I mean, I can't walk, so it's probably... <laughs> um, so my, my dad comes home uh, with a 1937 film entitled The Adventures of Robin Hood, starring Errol Flynn. And I was very upset because... This movie's old. And you knew Errol Flynn's accent work wasn't going to be anywhere near as sophisticated yeah, no, as Kevin no, Costner's. No. And like, my, my, dad, my dad said something I'll never forget. He's like, John, I haven't seen the Kevin Costner Robin Hood, but I guarantee you this is better. <laughs> He's right. And within, I was, you know when you're a little kid and you get like, you don't get what you want, so you're kind of like, well, for the first three minutes, I, I, I didn't stop doing that when I was a little kid. I was not happy, but then with it, and, but the second Errol Flynn put that deer on Prince John's table, I was like, "Oh, this is amazing!" With the compliments of your royal brother, King Richard, God bless him. By my faith, Richard, a bold rascal, Robin. I like you. I gratified, Your Highness. But it really kicked into high gear when I saw Casablanca when I was 16. I was in uh, Miss McNamara's English class, and we just finished reading. Um, we did a unit on uh, Elie Wiesel's Night, uh, which is a very great book, but it's very heartbreaking. And we did a whole unit about the Holocaust, so we watched Schindler's List and a bunch of other... And then so at the end of this unit... She's like, okay, we're doing this, all this super sad stuff. We're going to do something a little fun today. And you might not get it now, but you're going to get it eventually. And within two minutes, I was like, oh, I found my thing. And I'm not, I'm not a Luddite, guys. I like modern cinema. We, there's a lot of great stuff going on, but the classical Hollywood style from 19... 19- I'm going to say 1917 to 1954. They took ordinary people and they blew them up to huge proportions. Yeah. And with a couple of exceptions, we just don't have that anymore. Like where you just go see a movie because this person's in it. Mm-hmm. Oh, we're going to go see this. Who's in action in the North Atlantic? Oh, Bogart? Sweet. We're going to go see that. You know what I mean? Yeah, I'd go see the new Bogart picture or the new Cary Grant picture exactly. or whatever. Yeah. You're right. Yeah. We don't have that massive... These people These people are not like us. You could say they're stars of the highest order. They're, they're stars of the highest order. Old celebrities, it seems like to be... And I'm not saying we don't have performers now who are immensely talented, but people had to be almost at like a party trick level of talent to be famous... Back then, back in the early 1900s and in the, in the era that you're talking about coming into the era of film, you had, to be, you had to be able to do something other people couldn't readily do. You had to be able to sing and dance and act and do a speech and read a poem and make people cry and fall on your butt. You had to be able to do all this. And I think that that is what I see when I see those old films is just the craft across the board. Everybody is sort of 
both practicing some great craft, but also kind of inventing the craft as they go along. Exactly. And also, being an actor, it does t- it takes a lot of talent. But a lot of it is also, you can be taught to be a great mm-hmm. actor. But there's something different between being a actor and being a movie star, which you can't teach that. Right. There's a couple movies where you see people and you can imagine... The, the one I'm thinking of is Stagecoach, 1939. John Wayne's breakout role. He'd been in Hollywood a long time, mm-hmm. obviously, but he's the opening shot where you see him as the Ringo Kid, and there's a close-up, and he cracks his rifle. You can literally imagine a crowd of people in a theater going, whoa, who is that? Yeah. You know, we just don't really have... That quite that the myth making of the individual is not as strong back then. It was sort of uncharted territory. That these the the idea of being a film star of simply just being projected that large on a screen in front of people was going to have an impact. Yes. So let's talk a little bit about our our actual subject today. Let's talk about Joan Crawford. Even if you watch one of these old movies and you're not into the style of them and you're not into the pace and you find it dry or you find it cheesy. There's something about her that you can just watch. What is it about Joan Crawford that you think makes her that person? She just wants it so badly. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, she's not one of those people that was like, oh, I don't want to be famous, and it's so hard. No, she's like, God damn it, I'm, I'm going to be famous. Mm-hmm. I'm going to be the most famous person in the world. And I'm going to show all of you. You know, because she had a horrible childhood. Um, How so? She, uh, her... Very poor. Uh, mother worked in the laundry. All the kids had to. Um, sexual abuse from the Midwest. And uh, dropped out of school in ninth grade. And just started dancing. And literally said, I'm going to be something. And went to New York and lived in New York for a while. And then just happened to meet an MGM talent scout who said, you know come out to the coast and she got signed to like a six month deal which basically meant we're basically hiring you to sleep with people mm-hmm. but she was determined to not be that and she became the biggest star what role really put her on the map she was in a Lon Chaney movie called uh, I think it's The Unknown mm-hmm. about an armless about a knife thrower who uh an armless you, knife thrower well you think you think he's armless but mm-hmm. he's not that's a twist and then she falls in love with him because mm-hmm. she so he has his arms removed mm-hmm okay so it's really spoiler, cool. spoilers for the unknown folks but she falls in love with him Thinking well, he has well, no well, arms. Well, well, well no, and she, then she takes pity on him. and He's worried that if she finds out that he's got arms, she won't love him anymore. <laughs> exactly. So he has him cut off. Uh-huh. This is Joan Crawford circa 1925. So she was quite attractive. Oh, she's beautiful. Yes. And like that's the sad thing. It's like when people think of Joan Crawford is... They usually think of her as um, the middle-aged Joan Crawford, which is not to say she wasn't attractive anymore. That's like her in her power, though. I think that's where she's iconic. Yeah. But when she was an ingenue... I have a publicity shot of her from 1929, and when people see it, they're like, wow, I had no idea how beautiful she was. Clark Gable, who was in the film Possessed, that you asked me to watch for this conversation, he's, you know, they, they all have these 
faces that you look at them and you go, I don't even know, I can't even form a normal opinion yeah. of that face because it's 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 carved into the side of Mount Rushmore, you know. Pretty it's, much. Yep. And you and you have to believe, okay, that was just a person walking around who was discovered at some point. And it's so funny to me, everything you're saying about Joan Crawford sounds like a Joan Crawford character. Pretty much. Like the kind of muscling in and sort of saying, I want it, I'm gonna go for it. And when you said she wants it, when the camera's on her, she wants it like crazy she, she just like she's like i mean if anyone's in the room it's like yeah no if you're looking it. at anything but me right now you're missing out on the real show you know yeah, it's crazy yeah. and i think that again that's what that star quality that we're talking about that's you what that is you can't bottle it or it just is and it, and it doesn't go away I, th- I think that it is hard sometimes to get into the rhythm of watching old movies but if you let yourself get into it what's amazing especially about the pre-code stuff uh, which possessed was it's much more contemporary feeling than you expected to oh be. it's i want i i watched it and i was just like man this could be made i mean obviously it's a bit more patriarchal and yes no there, there's some problems going on <laughs> but you know it could be made well, the, the premise of this movie, let's talk a little bit about what Possessed is. She works at a box factory. So yeah, she works at Acme Box Company. Yeah. And she is just, she's already thirsty for more. She doesn't want this. She's seemingly being courted by this guy, Al Manning, who's a contractor, who says contracting is a pretty swell racket. Yeah. And he's not thinking big. He just wants to kind of woo her. And the film language is so obvious that this woman, Marion, should not settle down with no. Al Manning. He's a sweet guy, but he's got this edge to him. He's kind of... He's rough around the edges. He's he's thinking small. Later in the film, we see him, and he's got more money, and he's succeeded a bit. He's still got this kind of small-minded man's look at the world. Yeah. But she's just so clear. I mean, even, you know, the sunlight shines on her differently. She's not destined for this place. She's got a halo. A train passes through. And uh, there's this amazing shot that shows the different windows of the train where she has a view into all these different cars. And each window is a different aspect of high society life. Of high society life, which includes, of course, booze. Uh, booze and and a, a, a lot of uh, people of color doing servile things. Oh, so, so that part was kind of yeah, unsettling. Yeah, There's like yeah, three yeah, of I those mean, in a row. That's always going to be unsettling. It's like just like the sexual politics of this film are Dude, way out of whack for today's standards. So are the the th- racial. This film ones. is Snow White. I mean, not, not literally Snow White, but Snow White. No, you're right though that that's pretty much it for the people of color in this yeah, movie. Yeah, I mean, um, so at least it doesn't get worse than that. But anyway, she meets a wealthy man who's hanging out of the back of a car that's got a little patio. I, I don't know if I've ever seen a caboose that's that nice before but he's sitting back there drinking champagne out of a martini glass yeah for some reason which seems a little uncultured for a a guy who's supposed to be part of high society but he talks to her these conversations in these movies are so coded and so we're talking about what we're talking about but we're not really talking about it (laughs) but are we and what she gets from this guy is this spark that she feels that she could be part of this other life only two kinds of people the ones in and the ones out doesn't sound very easy anything's easy for a woman say what do you do with this God-forsaken spot. Work in a paper box factory. Oh, go on. Nothing like you ever came out of a paper box. But I mean to get away. Ooh, naughty, naughty. Off the big city to be done wrong by. To be done right by. Now, is that a nice way to talk? (laughs) But he gives her his name and address in New York. I don't know if he seems to ever really expect her to come find him or if he even remembers that he gave it to her. He clearly doesn't. And he's, he's obviously pretty drunk. So, and... 
you know, so he probably doesn't remember. And he says something in that opening scene about how everything's easy for a woman, you know, yeah. which is like, again, the, the politics of this film, you're definitely getting this idea that we're going to see Joan Crawford play a powerful character, but she's, the way she accesses power and the way she thinks of herself, she even says in that opening scene when she's turning down Al Manning's affections. All I've got is my looks and my youth and whatever it is about me the fellas like, that you like. Do you think I'm going to trade that in on a chance it'll never come? Oh, no. I don't know, she's very convincing in this, even if as you're watching it, you're going, no, Marion, you're so much more than just that. But, I mean, that's basically, like, every, every single Joan Crawford movie from this era. The mm-hmm. working girl who know, knows... Gonna get how, hers. Who knows how to... Who is like, I'm a woman in this world, and we don't have much, so I'm gonna use what I have, but I'm also really a good person. Right. I'm a good... I'm not a harlot. Mm-hmm. You know, but I can use it. It still is about her finding her agency in this world um, and mm-hmm. amongst men who really are, even the good ones, even the Clark Gable character, uh, Mark Whitney, who is presented as kind of a paragon. Yeah. Even he slugs her and says, you little tramp, get out. So it's like even, you know, and of course this was the era where people slap each other all the time and then just move on with the conversation. And plus, like, it's not a Gable picture unless he calls someone a tramp at least once. Well, they've got problems now because now he just added domestic abuse to this whole disagreement they're having. The man is still the sort of moral signpost of the film, which yes. is which is grating by today's standards. But it is funny to see that you're enjoying her performance and you're enjoying her Joan Crawford but you're seeing that with all her star power, the best roles she is given are still roles that require her to be mistreated. Well, I mean, that's and that's basically her whole thing. Mm-hmm. Was like the, the, that's why she became so popular, I think, is because she often played shop girls or working girls or, you know, snappy who rose above their... And so to Depression-area audiences, women... They could be like, wow, we could do that. Like, we could move up. Mm-hmm. We could marry a Mark Whitney if we just... Well, she just walks right into a room full of guys and starts saying, are you rich? Yeah, <laughs> I, love, I love that. You know, another funny thing about that scene, you mentioned something about the snappy dialogue, but there's sometimes in those old movies, dialogue is so clever that it's abstract. Wally is the, is the old man who's hanging out of the back of the train car that yeah. she meets, who she comes to see in New York, who then doesn't really have much to say to her except good luck getting yeah. around in the city. And throws her out. When she comes to, into his apartment and catches him, he's hung over from the day before. And, and, and his hot water bottle's melted. Well, his, it's like an ice pack yeah. on his head. And it's, it's the kind of cloth ice pack that you refill. And it's melted. And as he leans forward, water it, spills it, out it, of it. And he says, darn thing isn't housebroken. And then he says, Ambrose? And his servant comes and takes it. And he says, take it out for a walk. Yes, sir. And I was just thinking, if you were the servant of one of these guys with the snappy dialogue, yeah. you're walking away going, take it for a fucking walk. What the hell does he mean? I'm yeah. Sure, I'll just say yes, sir, and get out of the room. Yeah. You know, it's like, I think he means refill it. Maybe he means wash it. I don't, maybe he actually wants me to take it for a walk. Tell you what, just to be safe. Yeah, I'm going to take him a I'm walk. going to be taking this uh, ice pack for a walk. And what's funny is this movie is so melodramatic, but also has those moments of back and forth peppy dialogue that, that make it an interesting tonal mix. One of my favorite scenes in the entire movie is when... Uh Marion and Mark have their first... Mark takes her out to a nice, fancy French restaurant, and they they show you the menu in French Yeah. to show you how classy this place is, and she can't speak French at all, so she orders the most, like, 30s meal I can think of. I'll take roast beef, mashed potatoes with gravy, 
string beans, an apple pie with ice cream on top, chocolate. And then, you know, and the waiter goes, what? <laughs> and then Mark Whitney's like, I'll have the same. And like yes. very rough, like solidarity like like it's a real command move on on uh mark whitney's part <laughs> exactly like you're gonna do what i say and the waiter's like well it's clark gable so i yeah. have to go make two roast beefs with mashed potatoes yeah. or whatever they asked for that scene ends and and it cuts to hands pulling pages off the calendar yeah yeah yeah, yeah, yeah that's right <laughs> which is a very 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 which but means- it's three year time jump <laughs> normally when you get the time jump you go well they've established what i need to know about this world i guess they established <laughs> what i need to know i'm really not sure what's going on all i know is that i think they got roast beef and then yeah, yeah, three years yeah. went by <laughs> and then they, you know, they're setting up for a very fancy dinner party. And now, because Marion has been in this world for a long time, she, like, all the French names. Yeah, she's picking out the menu items. The souffle, baby. Mm-hmm. Finish it with the souffle. Make sure all the, you know, all the name cards are pointed out. So, yes, yeah, so at this point, she's kind of, I guess the phrase would be a kept woman. She's being Pretty much. being put up in an apartment by, by Mark Whitney, who doesn't want to marry her. It's that classic strong leading man bullshit of like <laughs> I love her too much to marry her because marriage doesn't work for me and it could ruin our whole thing yeah. and plus she's from the wrong side of the tracks and I have political ambition <laughs> when she's kind of running the show at that party Wally's over at the place and he's they're watching her from the next room and it's one of many creepy uh, patriarchal conversations about her when she's yeah, not around in these movies she's right there by the way what does Wally say he says to him she's the kind of a girl that you can see day after day or year after year. You know, she holds up, wears well. I think that was supposed to sound like he was saying something nice. <laughs> but saying she really holds up. She she wears I mean, well. And by the way, she's like only like 24. Right. Like, well, maybe maybe 27 if time if three years went by. But, but yeah, still, right. I mean, you know, it's Joe Garbage in 1831. It was pretty pretty good but yeah it's all at this, at this point it's the story now she wants him to marry her but he's not going to marry her because he loves her and he doesn't want to mess up things and and again it's very thin uh justification but there's this scene that had had me wanting to ask you a question she sits down at the piano and is she sings a, a song in french for a french guy and, german for a, german, in german. Yeah. is it the same song all three same times song, yeah. and then she sings the english lyrics like the the french guy says there should be no verse in english after all English is not the language of love. No? Listen. Though you hold me in your arms tonight, will tomorrow bring the same delight? Though we love each other, how long will it last? Question, did she actually play piano? I Probably, she probably did. They might have taught her just from this movie. Because, yeah. I mean, this was MGM, which, by the way, guys, if you don't know, MGM was the biggest studio in Hollywood. So, like, they taught you literally everything. I mean, the story that always makes me lose my mind is um, Debbie Reynolds was not a dancer before no. Singing in the Rain. And you watch, like, Good Morning, and she's dancing on par with Donald O'Connor, who is like, I mean, Gene Kelly, obviously, but I'm just uh, saying... They're it, both hoofers. All, all three of those people are, are... And you wouldn't know that she's not a hoofer in the room with those Her guys. Her shoes filled with blood. Like, that's how much, how hard... They worked her. And if you watch that scene, when Debbie Reynolds passed away, I watched that scene a hundred times. Just, it's the, I mean, it's amazing, though, to think that she wasn't trained before that. 
What we're complimenting is that these people were treated like <laughs> cattle. They basically were. I mean, for all that I love about the studio system, and from what I think it did well, you know, um, I've been sick, so I've had nothing but time on my hands. And um, all of the Andy Hardy movies were on Turner Classic Movies. Mickey Rooney, Judy Garland's and a bunch of them. And it's basically a training ground for for future starlets, and he was saying how he made, in like 1938 or 1939, he made nine pictures. Wow. Which, there are 12 months in a year, guys. I mean, (laughs) that's nine movies in a year? There's a great quote from Joan's worst enemy, Betty Davis, when she's just like, yeah, if they if they said we want you to make a movie called Parachute Jumper, God damn it, you're gonna make a movie called Parachute Jumper. You know, mm-hmm. you have no choice. Right. Like, otherwise, you're out of a job. I did want to talk to you a little bit about the 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 dialogue in these old movies where they. They talk about something, but they're not really talking about it. So there's a lot of these these lines of dialogue that are about what a man does and what a woman does. I wonder if that was just as graphic as they could be, or they had to be somewhat suggestive. No, they could be loaded, because this was before the code kicked in. And by the way, when we're talking about code, guys, um, in 19... <laughs> from like 1928 to 1934, technically there was a decency code um, brought in by... There was a scandal with a comedian called Fatty Arbuckle yeah. who allegedly raped a woman. He didn't, but it got so out of hand that they hired uh, the former postmaster general, a guy by the name of Will Hayes, to clean things up mm-hmm. in Hollywood, but he really didn't. It was so much, pretty much about West. And up until like 1934, when the catholic legion of decency came in mm-hmm. and was like nope we're gonna um you can really get away with anything so there's not not a lot of cussing or anything but when dialogue is loaded it usually means you know what it means exactly what you think it means what i love about the scene where she's playing the piano and she sings the song in english she's like looking at clark gable like with a look on her face like Come on, you idiot. Like, yeah. don't you realize I'm seeing this to you? And then they cut to him, and he's like, I don't know what to do. I'm just a man. <laughs> <laughs> what am I going to do with this gorgeous woman who... And I, I was watching, and I was like, dude, like, if Tom Crawford was singing that song to me, I'd be, like, f- freaking out and proposing to her right there. Well, it's so funny that his big moment of where we realize he's sort of declaring his love for her. It's like she's not around, but he's just had a meeting with Al Manning, the guy who knew Marion before she came to New York. Yeah. He's trying to make it sound like he and Marion are a sure thing because he doesn't know that Marion's been with Mark. Yeah. And so he says some stuff in the meeting with Mark that makes Mark realize, well, Marion's not going to wait around forever. Yeah. He's, now, he's having the coded conversation with, with Al Manning about things he's invested in that he's worried about losing. And he's talking about Marion, of course. It's the moment where you're supposed to believe this guy loves this woman. And what he says is... I'm afraid I won't be able to give you any more time. Why? No bad news, I hope. An investment I... I seem to be in danger of losing. A lot of money? Yes, but that's not important. It's the time and attention I've given it. 
You see, sometimes one becomes attached to investments. <laughs> then there's a sort of confusing passage where she she breaks up with him because she believes it's going to hurt his political aspirations if which is a very late in the movie subplot that he's going to yeah. run for governor. It's like suddenly these guys are talking about him running for governor and what's he going to do about her and he can't just suddenly marry her because that's going to look suspicious like he <laughs> married her to 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 look good for the voters. But if he doesn't marry her then they can't be together and it's this weird conversation. By the way, he's unmarried the entire time. Right. Like, so it's not like going to be a big... No, it's so strange that the scandal <laughs> is that he had a girlfriend. You know, yeah, that, yeah. That's and the scandal they're worried about, is people are going to find out you had like, a girlfriend. <laughs> she's not 17, remember? No. Like, she's a grown woman. It's a very consensual affair. He's got no kids. Right. He's not married. Nope, he just had a... Like... But the scene where she breaks up with him, kind of on false pretenses, where she pretends not yeah. to care about him for the betterment of the state. Uh-huh. And he's going to um, clean up those prisons. Right, <laughs> right, exactly. It's such an overreach the way that she breaks up with him, as though because she's not just breaking up with him, she's going to marry Al, and she never loved him. Yeah, and she goes. It's like the moment in the film where the kid needs to to scare off a dog, uh-huh. and he has to throw a rock at it and say, uh-huh. "I never liked you. Uh-huh. Go on, get out it's of here." It's like Harry and the Hendersons. Yeah, it is. Go it's... away. When did you stop loving me? I never started. What? I told you once, I'd never lie to you. If you want the truth, for the past six months, you've bored me to death. I don't believe it. No woman could have pretended to love a man as you've loved me. Oh, yes, she could. That was the way she earned her living. It's like she's making it so mm. bad as she gets around the corner and breaks down, but it's so over the top because you're just like, well, that wasn't necessary. Even though I understand that this is a movie and it's got to have a story, it's so funny that it's like, these are adults... He's got a girlfriend. That shouldn't be a big scandal. And these two people don't really seem to have much standing between them talking to each other about what they're thinking. But I understand they have to. But what it sets up is this this new, like re- literally in the last 10 minutes of the movie, the conflict is, you know, are, are they going to be together now that she has essentially taken a scorched earth policy to there. She doesn't just say, I, I don't want to be with you. She makes it sound like she, it was a, she yeah. thought it was boring. She said, you've been boring me. You pulled me up from nobody and you taught me all these things about high society. And amongst the things that she mentions when she's listing things that she learned, she said, learning how to eat ice cream with a fork. Is that something that the rich do that I just don't know well, about? Well, by the way, like, I love how in, it's like, like very early in the movie, while she's having the conversation um, at the train, they cut to the house, mm-hmm. to her, I guess it's her parents' house or whatever, with Al, and he's pouring the ice cream out into the bowl, and yeah. it becomes soup, and it's very metaphorical, because, you know, it was the 30s, guys, ice cream, you know, and you couldn't just buy, it was a big deal. To have it. You had to, to have it. Yeah. And, like, it clearly shows that Mark thought that Marion was his the Al thought, rather, that Miriam was his best girl. Because yeah. that ice cream, it was 1931. People knew bread lines. So. Right. Well, it also is, for a split second, I thought, wait, did 
Did ice was did they just have did they just eat melted ice cream back then? And then I realized, oh no, this is a sign that yeah. she's late. Uh-huh. That that's what the visual communication well, that's was. That's what I thought too. Like, wait, what? <laughs> and then she says, "Oh, I like it. It's even better this way, or whatever." Mm. You know, she's trying to put a positive spin on it because she's drunk on champagne. <laughs> yeah, um, which she drank out of a martini glass. But yeah, so anyway, it, but, but but at that point later, when when she breaks up with him, that's the scene where he says, "You little tramp," and slaps her and tells her to get out. And things really seem pretty irreparable. And then there's a guy we've never seen before who I think <laughs> is his political. Opponent. Yeah, and I looked at the time when there's seven minutes left in the movie. the The villain is introduced in this one scene, but he's a guy who's they're going to load up Mark's campaign speech with guys who are going to belt, you know, hit him with with irrelevant questions yeah. and confuse him, and then they're going to hit him with the big scandal, which is, didn't you have a girlfriend? <laughs> <laughs> didn't you have a girlfriend? Who is Miss Moreland? She worked at a box factory. <laughs> <laughs> we can't have a governor who dated someone who worked at a box factory. But this is an opportunity for Clark Gable to stand up there and be, you know, morally upstanding. And he answers the questions with aplomb, but then he doesn't really have a very good response for the, the, the they throw a little handbills down that litter over the Oh, crowd. that's what I love too. Yeah. It's like, they say, who is Miss Moreland? And as people are asking, she takes the control. And again, this is an example of, I guess, the fact that this is a, a Joan Crawford picture. She stands up and she's like, I am Miss Moreland. Yeah. You're most Joan Crawford voice the entire mm-hmm. I am Miss Moreland and <laughs> I loved Mark Whitney. I was in his life once, but I'm not in his life anymore. He belongs to you, all of you who are here tonight. Yeah? Well, he don't belong to me. Me neither. No, of course not. Because you were hired by his enemies to play this contemptible trick. Men who can be bought and sold have no claim on Mark Whitney. After all, what is this crime they've unearthed against him? Is he a murderer, or a thief, or a liar? No. Worse. He loved a woman, and she loved him. Then the movie pretty much ends right after that. She leaves after feeling like maybe she has uh, helped out his political chances because the crowd erupts, and it yeah. seems like maybe the scandal's going to be a non-starter. So whatever unnamed opponent that was that we just got introduced to, they needed to insert one shot of him going, no! <laughs> um, but she leaves in tears, and it, it was kind of an interesting visual motif. She walks out of the and venue, raining. and it's raining, and she walks past a million posters of Clark Gable's face, yeah. and then as she's passing by the last one and about to go, I guess, up the, the stairs to the train, there he, is. he appears behind her. And I was like, that was kind of a neat visual motif to have it be that yeah. you're looking at, I bought it too. that his, he's looking over her shoulder the whole time she's leaving, and you feel his presence, and then he's actually there. That was, was kind of neat. Especially for 1931, because, I mean... A tracking shot. Because you got to remember, like, we're not that far away from the switch over to silence, mm-hmm. so talkies weren't still... 100% technically great at this point. So but I have a cool shot like that. It just shows what an A-list picture that this was. Well, I mean, I enjoyed it a lot. Folks, if you're listening to this and you're like, is this going to turn <laughs> into a Joan Crawford podcast? It's possible. It could. It's possible. It could. I just love the idea that this is a woman who literally walked around with her 8x10s on her. Because you never know. Right. Someone might be there, and they might be like, hey, right. you're doing coverage. you like, yes, yes, I am. And like, I just love the idea that like, if you wrote to her, she would write back, because she's like, I'm a star, and that's my job. That is both a perfect expression of the vanity and also the humility, maybe, about what it took to make her a star. Like She, she knew that she was only a star <laughs> if, if she had... People that she wrote letters for three hours every day of her that's life. That's crazy. 
And she had outfits specifically for writing letters in. See, like that's that's oh, I'm sorry, that's awesome. I'm just, I'm just not even trying <laughs> compared to that. Yeah, I mean, it's like a whole other level. Of I like, have one outfit for everything. <laughs> me too. I, I wear t-shirts and sweatpants that look like actual pants. You could say I have a letter writing outfit. It's <laughs> yeah. also my everything else outfit. I mean, just the idea of like, oh, I've. I have costumes for different periods of the day. Aren't you going to write that letter that you need to write? <laughs> I'm waiting for those clothes to get back from the cleaners. I'm sorry. <laughs> and um, and also, I I just want to quote like, because um, Joan and Clark had a thing going on. Oh, they did when this movie was being made. Uh huh. Was this like a fresh thing that was started with this movie? Or yeah, did they I think have it, it? I think it did. And um, he she said about him. He was the most masculine thing I'd ever seen. Oh, wow. And we were like two kids with our hands in the cookie jar behind Uncle Louie's back. Wow. And I'm just like, I have a feeling that she hit on him. Oh, I think she would devour him. Like, I mean, I'm sorry. Like, yeah, she's just like, yep, I want some of that. No, I, I'm just gonna say this. I'm terrified of her, like <laughs> in a good way. I mean, not in like I'm no, but she's just very like I know exactly what I want. Yes, that's I. I would like to nominate Joan Crawford as a feminist icon because I don't know that many people had that image that she had of of do not fuck with. No, and and also I want to point. I out... I mean, maybe Betty Davis. Well, and that's. And you're either Team Betty or Team Joan, and well, based on the name root situation, if we're if we're kind of coming into the end of this episode, I would say I feel that uh, just by default, I'm Team Joan. Look, Betty, you're great, and I love all about Eve and now Voyager, but like, dude, <laughs> like Team Joan. Team Joan. Well, before we wrap it up, I do want you to mention, you said you have her autograph. Is it a letter that she signed? Is it's that what a you letter. Have? It's a letter written by to a writer of New York Magazine who'd written an article about her. Mm-hmm. And she read it and was like, oh, thank you very much. And I found it in a... In a my, my, my brother got married last year and he was in New York and it's... There's a, a bookshop called the Argosy Bookshop in Manhattan and it's been in a bunch of... Um, New York-based movies, and they sell old autographs. And in the clearance autograph thing, I was just flipping through, and uh, th- there was a, a letter, and I literally gasped. <laughs> and I didn't buy it, but I could not Stop thinking about it. It haunted you. I was like... (laughs) And the next day, I said to my parents, "Uh, I'm going to go out for a while. Because my mom was like, well, what are you going to do with that? Because you know how moms are. No matter how old you get, guys, moms are moms. Well, if a mom sees you going out in New York City with money in your pocket, her first thought is, oh my God, is my son into letters signed by Joan Crawford? Well, The classic story of a kid hits the big city. <laughs> he goes up and blows his money on the first day. I said day. to myself, if I don't buy this, I'm going to regret it for the rest of my life. Mm-hmm. And I bought it, and I was literally almost crying. And the woman behind the cash register goes... You know, I saw you here yesterday, and you looked like you really wanted this, and this has been here for a long time, 
And I'm just really happy it's coming to a good home. Well, that's cool. And it's my prized... It's my prized possession. I don't have kids. <laughs> okay? Like, this is the great... You know, it's the coolest thing I own. It's got a pretty sweet Iron Maiden shirt. I do. I have many sweet <laughs> Iron Maiden. I have many sweet heavy metal shirts. That'd be a good episode, by the way. The many shirts of the John Nagel. Of John Nagel, yeah. <laughs> you can do like an... You know, I could, I could pose in them. Because <laughs> I have shots. Well, I feel like we are two kids with our hands in the cookie jar of podcasting. And I'm so glad this is a pre-code podcast because no one can tell us what we're here to talk about. No, no we can't. But I think that was it. And um, it's time for you and I to go eat some chocolate ice cream with a fork, if yeah, you don't mind. Let's do that. And, uh, and but, but before we go, I will let people know you can find me on Twitter at Gianni W. That's G-I-A-N-N-I-D-U-B-Y-A. Or you can listen to a film podcast I do with a couple of friends called Movie Schmovie. If you're interested in my music, you can check out soundcloud.com slash sci-fi. That's S-I-G-H-F-I-G-H. And if you have anything that you want to address specifically to this show, you can reach us on O. It's johncast at gmail.com. That's John with an H. Don't get it wrong. Where can they find you online, John? I'm John Nagel. My very neglected Twitter account is at jnagel4. Um, my very neglected Medium account is www.medium.com at jnagel4. And um, you can uh, find me around town now that I'm feeling a little bit better at open mics in various places without steps around Baltimore. I am Baltimore's handicapped man about town. I've played in bands. You play in clubs where it's difficult for anybody to get down there with an amp and an instrument, and you think, like, how would someone get into this place if they had different needs? Especially in this city, because, you know, it's 300 years old, Mm -hmm. and because of that, there's this stupid loophole in the ADA, which says they don't have to accessible you know, so yeah, it, comedy bookers, <laughs> if you're listening and you have a place without steps and you want someone funny and inspirational, give me a call. Well, I think that's it. Thanks, John. Thank you. Thank you.